Thank you for tuning in to Ominous Ontario, where I discuss murders that have shocked the province. I'd like to start by saying that discretion is advised. We don't hold back here. Some episodes will feature very graphic details of murder. Most episodes will feature adult language and very blunt discussion of some of the most gruesome crimes in the province. So this podcast is my first episode, and I started it um, basically just out of a request from a bunch of friends. I like to visit cemeteries, and I visit the graves of a lot of murdered people locally. And so in order to find these people, I have to look up a lot of their stories. I like to spend time visiting different graves and cemeteries um, around the province, typically around southern Ontario. I live in Kitchener, Ontario, so I like to travel around that area. Um, Toronto and Hamilton I spend a lot of time in. And our first story is from a grave I visited in Hamilton. So with almost every episode, there's going to be a photo of the victim's grave and sometimes even the murderer's grave that accompanies that podcast. For our first episode, I'd like to take you to August 16th, 1976 in Hamilton, Ontario. It's a beautiful summer evening at the Rollo House. Wife Sandra is out talking to a music teacher about starting piano lessons with her husband John because she thought that it would be a really great way to bring them a little bit closer together. Six-year-old Jason and his five-year-old sister Stephanie are playing outside on the quiet streets. They live on Lantana Court and it's a beautiful place to raise children. There's only about six houses on the street at that time, I believe. So the kids are just playing outside. It's a little bit past their bedtime, but it's summer, you know, they can let that go. And Sandra comes home. So the children go to tell their neighbor, who's Sandra's close friend, Barbara Swin. And she tells Barbara that they can come to visit with Sandra. So Sandra and uh, Barbara are sitting in their kitchen. They're just having a little chat, catching up, talking about their day and talking about, for some reason, the family blood types, which is pretty interesting. And that does come into play a little later. So while the women are gossiping in the kitchen, having a cup of coffee, John put the kids to bed. And after Barb had left, John and Sandra had gone to sleep themselves. John had slept on a cot downstairs. The couple had been arguing recently over John's flirting with a neighbor. Things had gotten really heated to the point that Sandra actually stopped wearing her wedding ring for a little while. Um, The previous Friday, they had invited that neighbor to Sandra's parents' house in Cambridge, where John was a little too close in the pool, so he was back on the couch after they had made up before. John says when he woke up in the morning, he found the house empty, and after looking around, he found a note from Sandra. So the note told John something he'd already long suspected, that Sandra was having an affair with a lawyer. So for several weeks now, John had been bringing up this lawyer that he said that Sandra was seeing to friends and family, and no one really believed it because knowing Sandra, they just didn't think that was possible. But this note really seemed to suggest that it was true, that, that Sandra had been seeing this lawyer and she was leaving. So the day he woke up to a note from his wife, that would be Tuesday, August 17th, John called in sick to work. 
Sandra did receive several phone calls from her work, from her mother, from the daycare. Um, and John would tell all of them that Sandra was out. Whenever said that he had received a note or never saying that she had left for another man, just that she was out. So John says to pass time that day, he did take apart the bed and he ripped up a section of carpet as well as the padding underneath. He also did some laundry and he took a trip out to Canadian Tire. When night fell, he took a drive along St. Catharines, went to Niagara Falls, Bramford, and Caledonia. He says he got home at midnight and then he decided to take a bike ride where he did hit a patch of rocks and he fell down and cut up his hands. So the following day now, we're on Wednesday, August 18th, John wakes up at about 5.15 and he gets some dusting and vacuuming done around the bungalow that he shares with his family who he says has left him. He loads up his car with the ripped up carpet pieces that he has and he heads for the Glanford dump and then he finally decides to tell someone that his wife has left. Barbara Swin, that neighbor, is the first person to hear that Sandra, Jason, and Stephanie were gone. By 11.30 that Wednesday morning, John is at his father-in-law's office in Cambridge to show him the note left behind by Sandra. So let me just talk a little bit for a second here about the parents of Sandra. Sandra's parents are Doug and Margaret Pollington. The Pollington parents are absolutely incredible human beings. So Doug Pollington, he became chief of the Cambridge Fire Department in 1974. Being the chief of the fire department doesn't really seem like it would be a big deal unless you note the fact that Cambridge amalgamated and became one city in 1973. So this means that Doug Pollington started off at a fire department that was three separate departments just a few months earlier before they amalgamated together into one. So there is chaos throughout this department. There is not really order. There's not really a good communication between them. And Doug Pollington became the chief of that department in 74 and completely changed the way it was run. To this day, some of the policies and procedures that were put in place by Doug Pollington are still in place. So after what happened to his family, Doug Pollington and his wife became some of the largest advocates in Canada for victims' rights. And you would have seen them standing alongside families like the Mahaffey family and the French family in 1995 during the most high-profile case in Canada. So definitely the Pollingtons are a family that if you are into Canadian crime in any way, you would have seen around. So I think that it's um, very fitting to have this be our first story because uh, you're going to see Doug Pollington come up a lot in future stories. Anyways, back to this morning here on Wednesday, August 18th of 1976. So John goes to Doug Pollington's office in Cambridge to show him the note that was left behind by Sandra. Back at the Paulington house, John sobs to himself at the kitchen table and Marge notices that he isn't really shedding any tears for his allegedly runaway family. He's just weeping at the table, but there's no real emotion behind any of it. So John meets with a lawyer who recommends that he hires a private investigator to find his family. So Sandra's mother takes John to his parents' house where both her and John's mother, Dorothy, pleads for him to go to a hospital so he can get treatment for his injured hands. John refuses because he says he's only interested in gathering some things from the house so he can go and stay with his parents. Back at the resident of John's parents, private investigator Ron Arnold is speaking to John and asks him if he was having an affair. 
Now, Ron Arnold is formerly a Scotland Yard detective, so you can't really put anything past this guy. John says he is not having an affair. Sandra's sister, Janice, had been avoiding John for several months at this point. She was babysitting the kids, and she was just very uncomfortable with his advances, and had even taken to hiding in the bathroom when he would come home early if she was babysitting. She would go into the washroom and turn on the shower and just sit on the floor in the bathroom waiting, which is kind of a sad statement for the kind of person that John was around other women, uh, but is also something that's notable for later on. Um, Janice had been avoiding him for quite a while, but felt that she should go and see him while her sister was missing. Um, so she went to go see how he was doing at his parents' house. They had some conversation outside and he walked her to her car after a little bit of time. And according to Janice, he wrapped his arms around her and then he put his hands down her pants. So while this is happening, a mother and two boys were fishing at 12 Mile Creek. The boys went off to explore and discovered a blue nylon bag in the water. Curious, they pulled it from the water and unzipped it, where they found a green garbage bag inside. For most people, this is typically your first sign to run, but being teenage boys, they don't think that way clearly, so they decided to open that garbage bag, and when they did, they saw the body of a young girl. So the boys screamed and ran away, and the police were called. The following morning, August 19th now, for anyone keeping track, John returned to work. He was a manager at City Hall in Hamilton, so he definitely had a great job. Uh, he was formerly an engineer. He did work his way up from road crew at City Hall to engineer, finally landing himself an office management position. So he returns to work and informs his coworker Marjorie Smith that his family had left. Marjorie and John had a very close relationship, so close that they began having an affair in 1975, which was called off just a few months later. So well before the family's disappearance in 1976, but they did remain close. At 10 o'clock in the morning, a detective arrives to take a statement from John regarding his missing wife. John replies to that request by saying, oh, I was just about to call you guys. But Doug Paulington, being a concerned father, had already filed a missing persons report for his daughter and his grandchildren. That afternoon, detectives asked John to come into the police station to answer a few questions about his wife, which he agrees to do. But before he heads down, he makes a pit stop at the bank and removes Sandra's name from their joint account. When John finally arrives at the station, he mentions Sandra's affair with the lawyer and says that even if she comes back, he won't take her back because he's done with her. That he guess he thought that she'd made him look like a fool and that he just couldn't have that. What John doesn't know is that while he's at the police station, Doug is at the morgue and he has just identified the body in the blue nylon bag as his granddaughter, Stephanie. That evening, John is informed Stephanie's body has been found. He doesn't shed a tear, still sitting at the police station. All that John does is hand over his keys to his house and his car so that police can conduct a search. He's completely cooperative with that. So up to this point, he has done nothing to make police truly believe that he did anything wrong. Um, Janice had not reported the incident against her at this point. So once they get inside the bungalow, they see the ripped up carpet on the floor and they see blood everywhere in the house. John explains the carpet away by saying that the kids had gotten sick on it. The cat urinated on that spot. So Sandra had been asking him for some time now if he could remove that carpet spot. He finally did it and um, took it away and told them that he had brought that to the dump. 
Investigators also found a very, very lewd pornography collection. This was torture material that wasn't even legal in Canada. So John, now knowing that the blood in the ripped up carpet is usually not going to be the best thing to find, decides that he should probably lawyer up. 11.30 p.m., he is arrested for the murder of his daughter. John claimed he made a run to the Glanford dump, but the police said that an employee at the Ottawa Street dump had remembered seeing John Rollo, so they went there for their search instead. After two days of doing their search in the dump, they found traces of the murder. They finally found that piece of carpet and padding from the house. Police divers were also searching in waterways around St. Catharines at the same time, trying to find Jason and Sandra. Strangely enough, instead of finding Jason or Sandra, they did find two other bodies. One of them was a suicide victim, and the other one was a man who had had a heart attack behind the wheel and had drove into the lake. So they did not have the bodies they were looking for, but two other families did find their closure that day. Stephanie Rallo is buried on August 24th with her casket open. However, halfway through the service, it did have to be closed because her tiny body was turning black. Two days after putting Stephanie to rest, an OPP helicopter spotted something floating in the Welland Canal, and that something had feet with red polish on the toes. When the package was pulled from the water, there were several distinct knots tying the whole bundle together. They were the exact knots from the magazines that John had kept in his house. Once they were untied from the bundle, they found the decomposing body inside of garbage bags and two sleeping bags. One of the sleeping bags had a name written inside, Jason Rallo. Once again, Doug was asked to identify a body of someone in his family. John is told of the discovery of his wife and once more, he doesn't shed a tear. Just six days after burying Stephanie, the Paulington family gathered at the gravesite to bury Sandra beside her daughter. Two months later, the search for Jason Rallo is officially called off. On Christmas Eve in 1976, John Rollo is quietly released on bail. While he waits for his trial, he lives at his parents' house. He goes and visits the grave of his wife and children, and he frequently goes to his home to do lawn care. He waves at his neighbors callously, as if he's not been arrested for killing his wife and child. Can you imagine having that in your neighborhood? Can we just stop this for a second? Can you imagine the audacity of having a neighbor who is out on bail showing up almost every other day to mow the lawn and then to wave at you and your children as you drive past? So obviously, nobody in the neighborhood is waving back at him. He applies for his job back at City Hall to be allowed to work, but he is denied that request. So in April of 1977, he is still out waiting for his trial to start, just living with his parents. A tips came in that a body has been found. So Jason was identified and a service was held. However, three months later, the RCMP advised the OPP that they had been tracking their own criminal investigation and they believed that the body that they had was actually the one they were looking for. So they exhumed the remains and they were forensically identified to be those of five-year-old Jamie Shearer. John actively said there was no reason to hold the service for the boy at the time that they had thought they had found Jason and he did not attend the April burial. Many believe it's because they knew that he knew that it was the wrong remains. In November of 1977, John's trial finally got underway. It was a 16-day trial, and it was the biggest the city of Hamilton had seen since Evelyn Dick, which is a story I'm going to share on a future episode because there's something I really like about that one. Um, that was a pretty crazy 
crazy trial. So the trial of Evan, like Evelyn Dick will be coming up shortly. So anyways, the crown gave their version of events of what actually happened on the night that the Rallo family was murdered. And it is incredibly sad. The crown alleges that there was never a lawyer and that John had made up the affair to start planting the seeds of leaving in the minds of people around them. John's affair with Marge was well known, so they believe that Sandra confronted John that night and John punched his wife, causing a broken nose and loose teeth, which is why there was blood in the carpet and bed. Using a blind cord, John strangled his wife. The children woke to the fight and were witness to their father's anger. He used a pillow wrapped in a floral case to suffocate his children, one at a time. John then brought the bodies to the basement, leaving a blood trail. He stripped the victims and washed their clothes along with the bloody blankets. Sandra's blood is smeared on the doorframe and drips into the concrete floor's drain. John then wrapped his wife in two green garbage bags and two sleeping bags, which he binds using the intricate knots he learned from his favorite hardcore porn magazines. Stephanie is stuffed into one garbage bag. It is believed Jason was also stuffed into a garbage bag and a sleeping bag. The next day, he went to Canadian Tire on Upper James, where he purchased a blue duffel bag and some anchors. Sandra got two anchors to weigh her down, and Stephanie got one. No one has ever found Jason. He then put the bodies in his trunk, leaving bloody drips along the way. When darkness fell, John drove to St. Catharines and dumped the bodies of his wife and two small children in the water. Certain evidence is never revealed to the jury. They're not told about his pornography collection with the exact knots used to tie Sandra. They never hear about the sexual assault on Janice the day after his wife disappeared. When testimony from his lover Marjorie Smith begins, the public is even more outraged that he's out on bail. John has his bail revoked and he is brought into court before the jury is brought in every day so they are not aware he is back in jail. John's testimony lasts five hours over two days. He denies murdering his family, and the letter is scrutinized for its content. There are many spelling errors Sandra wouldn't make, and there is nothing to suggest she ever had an affair. John was the only person to ever make that claim. The jury deliberated for only six hours before coming back with a verdict. Guilty on all counts. John declares his innocence, a trend that will continue. Okay, so this is where the story takes a really crazy turn for me. So just one month before John committed the murders, the death penalty was abolished in Canada. So his life is going to be spared in a way that his wife and children's life were not. He is instead sentenced to life without parole for 25 years, which is the longest sentence that can now be given in Canada. Over those first holidays, John is kept in the Barton Street Jail, where he has to be kept in isolation because the other inmates are not fans of child killers. They send him Christmas cards with the names of his family written on them. To be honest, I'm fans of the way prisoners treat child killers. That's just my two cents, though. To me, I think it's, it's frankly funny. So, John is transferred to Kingston Penitentiary and put into protective custody, where he proves to be a model prisoner and applies for appeal for his convictions. He is quickly denied any and all appeals he attempts to make. John, with his city hall work experience, easily finds prison work. In 1980, he finally does a Princeton interview for the first time, and to say that the claims he made during it are completely outrageous is putting it mildly. So, 
Some of the things that this guy tried to say were that Jason and Sandra are still alive and that the body in the water was too decomposed for a positive ID from her father. Despite the fact it was wrapped in his favorite fuck-me-nots in his kid's sleeping bag. He then claims that Stephanie and Sandra may have been killed by the mafia and that Jason was kidnapped to keep him silent. He even says that Jason was brought to Italy. The interview did absolutely nothing to make people believe in his innocence. Despite that, by 1986, our delightful Canadian justice system allowed John escorted temporary absences. He is allowed to leave the medium security prison he's been transferred to to spend holidays with his family. There is a guard with him at all times, but Sandra's family does not find out about this until five years later when people in the community mention that they have seen John out. So the Fainhold Clause was introduced along with the abolishment of the death penalty. With this clause, inmates sentenced to life can apply for parole after 15 years if they have a good prison history. John at this point has upgraded his education. He's been working. He's a model prisoner. The Fainhold Clause is basically designed for prisoners like John Rollo. He's one of the first inmates in Canada to apply for the clause because he has never shown remorse or any accountability for his murders. He is denied parole. Doug and March Paulington become advocates for life in prison, meaning life in prison. They don't want Canada's most high-profile criminals to be able to see the streets again, and they don't want John out of his cell. They are the biggest supporters of the French and the Mahaffey families during Canada's most high-profile trial in 1995, like I said at the beginning here. These people were incredible, and they were at every parole hearing until they were too old to be able to go anymore. They were always there, always front and center, always talking about their daughter and their granddaughter and their grandson. So parole hearings begin annually for John, starting in the year 2000. John applies for both day parole and unescorted temporary absences. Once more, he's denied both because of his lack of remorse and feeling in the case. He is denied again in 2002. By 2004, he's one of Canada's longest-serving inmates. He has never given a dangerous offender status, but he is denied parole yet again for his lack of remorse or accountability. So at this point, he is a model prisoner who has been in jail for over 25 years because he just simply won't show any remorse or accountability for the crime he committed. In 2006, he applies once again for parole, but this time he also applies to the Association in Defense of the Wrongfully Convicted, which is now known as Innocence Canada. So this is an organization that I personally have a deep respect for. They helped release some high-profile, wrongfully convicted individuals in Canada, such as David Milgard, Stephen Truscott, and Guy Palmerin, who's going to come up on a future episode as well. John didn't supply the documents that he needed to the association, so his case was dropped, and his request for parole, once again, was denied. But this time, John appealed. So in June of 2007, he does something he has never done before. He has a hearing, and John Rollo cries. He is granted unescorted temporary absences at this time, and he uses them to scout out Sudbury as a place to live upon his full release. On August 26, 2008, 32 years after the murder of his family, John Rollo is granted day parole. He moves into a halfway house in Sudbury where he must stay every night on weekdays. He is free to do whatever he likes in Sudbury during the day as long as he is at that halfway house at night. On weekends, he may leave Sudbury and visit Hamilton where his family lives and where he murdered his own family. 
He does not need an escort for any of these visits. John wanted to move to Hamilton, but it was not advised by the board. He was still very much hated in the community, and they didn't feel he would be able to reintegrate there. In 2012, John moved in with his girlfriend. His conditions were changed. He was now allowed to spend his weekdays at the house, and weekends were to be spent at the halfway house. In April of 2020, amid the COVID-19 pandemic, John was granted a special COVID leave. He no longer had to live at the halfway house on weekends at all and could spend all of his days and nights at the home of his new wife. He calls her children his kids and refers to her grandchildren as his grandkids. They are aware of his criminal past and that he should have his own grandchildren by now, but he murdered his own little boy and girl. In February of 2021, at the age of 77, John Rollo was granted full parole. He is now free to leave Sudbury and says he is excited to travel the country once the pandemic ends. It is said he isn't in the best of health, which is why he got that COVID grant in 2020 in the first place. This is where the catch-22 is. So he is allowed to travel anywhere he wants to in Canada, but he's been a model citizen. He's not harmed anyone or committed any crime since his release back into the community. He still maintains he did not kill his family, and he has never told anyone where the remains of Jason are. The Paulingtons died without ever knowing where their grandson was. It is believed that he drifted out into Lake Ontario or that he's in the deep mud in 12 Mile Creek where his sister was found. I personally think that's unlikely since the divers were able to find other bodies. I'm more apt to believe that John Rollo used three different dump sites, so I'm closer to the Lake Ontario theory myself. I visited the graves of the Rollo family in Hamilton, and it was heartbreaking to know that Jason is not resting with his mom and his sister. His grandparents have also now passed, dying just one day apart in 2011. I hope you guys enjoyed my first episode of Ominous Ontario about John Rollo and the murders of his wife Sandra, daughter Stephanie, and son Jason. Please tune in for future episodes where I will be checking out other graves in southern Ontario and reporting to you guys about the history behind them. Thank you so much.